You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. Well, welcome to uh, Journal Club Monthly Podcast um, for August 2018. And today, um, our regular listeners will notice we're uh, not as we normally do this, uh, I'm here. I, I, I've inv- invaded the Journal Club podcast, so please uh, email your uh, feedback on that. I'm really welcome to have all the complaints about taking over from Ben, who usually does such a fantastic job on it. But that does let us have Ben and Victoria as more <laughs> guest-framed um, position. And the other thing that is quite unique about today is we are dual recording. We're recording uh, live at DFTB 18, and we are recording the actual August um, monthly podcast. So we're kind of trying a few bits and pieces. So just to prove that we're actually here, can everyone give us a big round of applause and make some real... So nothing like a bit of technical risk to kind of get us started. Um, So today we're going to do our normal format and I'm aware that some of you guys in our physical audience won't necessarily be familiar with that. So as Ian just alluded, each month we do a, uh, Ben facilitates a online asynchronous journal discussion and then comes up with a summary and then we do a recap of essentially what the discussion was around that. So this month's paper was one called Intellectual Streaking. The Value of Teachers Exposing Their Minds and Hearts, and it was by Beeman and Malloy and published in Medical Teacher in uh, 2017. So, um, Ben, do you want to take us through a little bit of an overview of the um, paper and sort of what drove you choosing it and uh, the discussion for the month? Yeah, absolutely. So, look, this paper is very much kind of an editorial or opinion piece, and I guess some people might feel that decreases its validity, but I also think it's a beautiful conversation starter on something that's really dear to all of us or something that we really worry about sometimes. And uh, Beerman and Malloy describe it as this concept of intellectual streaking. And they acknowledge this big secret in educational circles, I think, that we talk about being approachable and being you know, vulnerable and it's okay for other people to show their flaws in front of you. And then we secretly go away and we try and perfect our slides and we do heaps of research. We try and make sure that we can answer any question. And then we present potentially sometimes this completely unrealistic image of perfection in front of our learners and then go, it's okay to show your your flaws, you know. Um, So we try and get them into this vulnerable space, but we don't actually role model putting ourselves into that space. And so the article is really just a discussion about the potential that they argue this concept that they use the metaphor of intellectual streaking, that actually exposing your flaws, being a bit vulnerable in front of your audience or your learners and showing, um, you know, a few stretch marks and stuff can, um, that, that exposing a teacher's uncertainties, internal dilemmas, emotions, thought processes or failures can be really illuminating and valuable for learners and teachers alike. And it can actually help the learners engage once they know you're down there with them and your guide on the siding and you've uh, given them sort of a little bit of a risk transaction in saying, I'm here in it with you rather than up above you. 
Excellent. And Vic, um, what was your take, I, I guess, from a gut feeling point of view? Um, you, you did comment on this month's um, post. Yes, but... uh, look, I think I'm sometimes here on the General Club as the kind of methods person, which was kind of funny because there's a lot of qualitative methods and I'm certainly no expert. Uh, but the two authors of this paper I know, so I've got to be a bit careful here, uh, but they certainly are well-respected educational researchers. But it just goes to show, doesn't it, that all of us still need to sell our paper. And I think obviously the title is definitely set up like that. It's a commentary piece. It's got some nice language in it. It's a short read. And I think it just goes to show that when we're trying to disseminate ideas, we're still out there in the in the formal literature, as it were. Um, but my thoughts about it were, and there were a number of commentators on the on the month's blog that sort of said the same thing, is it's not quite the right term. Because, you know, intellectual streaking, streaking as showing vulnerability, uh, I started the conversation, which then Eve added to in much more erudite way, which is, you know, most streakers aren't showing vulnerability at all. They're showing off. They're kind of, it's a narcissistic strategy uh, to sort of like, hey, here I am, and they're not really putting themselves backwards at all um, and showing vulnerability. Eve then took us through an anthropology of streaking and some of the history of it uh, from North America. And, and in fact, it was quite interesting because uh, that's Eve Purdy for anyone that doesn't know her, uh, our, our first emergency physician anthropologist. Uh, and sort of actually it was a statement. It sort of came out of uh, the sort of white men streaking on college campuses in response to what they saw as threats to the superiority. Now that's an anthropologist worldview. I don't know if it's true or not, but it just goes to show, I mean, you know, it's tricky when you're starting to put labels on things. I think the thrust of it and showing vulnerability is quite good. But one of the things I thought was, you know, there is a point at which it's too far. And I think Michelle Johnson talked about this at the uh, talk yesterday about stories. Um, you know, you've got to have a point to your story and it has to actually be meaningful. It can't just be random catharsis. And we've had powerful stories here who are really good, but you can tell there is actually a fine line every now and again. Uh, you know, you can get it wrong. And so, you know, you can position yourself almost too meekly. Yeah. And it did, um, I, I've got to agree completely there. I, I'm a big fan of using analogies, as you know, because um, I seem to try and find a word or a, an analogy for everything. But I, I'm also a big fan of them being specific and um, useful for teaching. And the streaking thing right from the start kind of alienated me a little bit. I, I do agree that it's good to see um, traditional peer-reviewed publication actually getting a bit clickbaity and trying to draw readers in, and it's probably some of the traditional journals actually trying to find their place a little bit. And what really this read like a blog to me, and it is—it's published as a personal opinion article, which was really really helpful because it let me um, invoke Hitchens' razor, and because there was no evidence behind it, I don't have to have any evidence to refute the stuff that was in it. Um, but it's, essentially, for me. It, I've spent most of the month actually trying to think about how to, uh, why my, my initial, uh, repulsion's probably too strong a word, but, but to the, to the concept. And I think it came down to really having, uh, using vulnerability explicitly as a tactic, um, to a group and just making it, uh, there's almost an assumption underlying that, that everyone in the group is, it's a homogenous group. They're all going to respond, respond to that. And I think that some of those things came up and was really wrapped up nicely in the comments, particularly by Jenny Rudolph. That was probably the closest, um, opinion. And Ben will just get to that in a sec. The thing I, I guess then is what, what I was left with is there wasn't really any tools or any, like from an expert practice, 
personal view sort of article, I would have found it really useful to say some of the specific things that they have felt worked and also, if we're being vulnerable, some things that we've done that have really cocked it up and really uh, screwed with group dynamics. Mm -hmm. I think for me, it's more about having a personal philosophy and striving to understand and like Yanni really nicely put is actually insight and understanding how how you are in space and how you affect the group dynamic Mm -hmm. and the most powerful thing for me is um, bringing just the beginner's mind to everything so that comes back to that frame of curiosity but more also just sharing that you're just like everyone even if there's um, some that might perceive expertise in you that you're just striving for mastery all the time in it and I only recently had the right word to put to that through reading about the concept of Shoshin in Zen mastery which is exactly that it's a Zen practice of um, the carrying the beginner's mind which fits perfectly for me and for me kind of helped me understand why I'd had that tussle with not really having affinity with intellectual streaking. Mm. Real streaking? All for it. <laughs> so, Ben, what have the other people um, said online, t- online this month? Yeah, well, I think you've kind of summed up the journey that we went through as a conversation as well. So I think we started out as streaking is good. It's very useful. And so a lot of people really valued... Um, the benefits of that, so Shannon McNamara, Mel Barlow and Janine Kane started about discussing, really validating the importance of the article and just allowing us to be vulnerable a bit. And, and they talked about the yin of vulnerability and the yang of maintaining learner's confidence and the difficulty between negotiating that conflict. Um, Janine stated, look, sharing our own vulnerabilities with our students and peers leads to a more open and honest experience for everyone. And then Glenn Posner kind of reframed it a little bit and he said actually this is really kind of an established debriefing technique which is this concept of um, normalization but this time you're doing it from a personal level so you're going the facilitator is not only telling participants this happens to learners all the time they're saying this happens to me all the time and that's just evening out the hierarchy a little bit but once we'd established that we liked it I think we really wanted to pull out and kind of tease you know a little bit more of the um nuance about it and we really came to the agreement that actually being mindful of why you're using vulnerability uh, is really important and I think there's a thin line nobody really liked my metaphor of there's a thin line between uh, intellectual streaking and an intellectual dick pic where you're like oh, I, <laughs> I, I, I love it yeah, yeah. but like you, you can go too far <laughs> I'm happy with the particle physics analogies. That <laughs> Too far. So, um, but there is that kind of point where you've made that vulnerability, you've either put it up as a shield yourself to protect you against criticism, or you've used it to kind of get currency socially rather than for a learning experience. And I think you've really got to think about why you're doing it and how it's of interest to the people being educated. And I think if you're using it to decrease that hierarchy, it's really useful. If you're bringing the, kind of the attention back to you, then actually probably uh, you've gone too far and you're getting a secondary gain out of that talk that you maybe haven't identified. So I, I guess um, Ian kind of summarised beautifully his thoughts on how much was too much, and I just want to quote him here. So he said, in terms of the right balance for intellectual streaking, use sparingly. Like all good strips, leave a little to the imagination. (laughs) Choreograph for effect and light carefully and be fitter than security. And then from there, Jenny Rudolph came on um, and she took that analogy that you alluded to, which I really liked, where she said, look, imagine that learning, I'm just going to directly quote her, 
is relational and dependent on being held. Yeah? Not just a cold intellectual activity. And vulnerability and fallibility by the teacher uh, needs to be a dose that doesn't threaten the perceived integrity of that environment. Yeah? So I've noticed that when I admit I've made a mistake with lightness or humor or a way that, that you clearly keep your balance, then learners respond to that very well. But if you believe, you know, but if it would be a really different story if I appear to be ashamed <coughs> or deeply discombobulated myself, because then that threatens that holding environment of learning. I thought that was really nice. She's smart lady. She seems yes. to be fairly intelligent. <laughs> so um, my last quote for the summary of the, the log response was really from Eve, and she highlighted the importance that if stories and anecdotes don't bring us closer to learners or learners closer to each other, rather they're acting to re-territorialise <laughs> something we feel we're losing, then we just aren't doing it right. Mm. Excellent. I think that's probably a really good spot to move on from streaking and into something that has some methods behind it. Just to note that previous article did have one citation so far. I did look up the metrics and it is uh, actually a letter and it's entitled The Clinician Educator Has No Clothes. So it's continuing. Join the discussion with Simulcast Journal Club. Uh, yes, no, thank you very much, Jesse. So I thought as our extra article for this episode, uh, we might do one that uh, has been published recently in Advances in Simulation. And this is about a thing called SimCup, which is a novel simulation competition format as an effective instructional tool in postgraduate medical education. So that's just in last month's Advances in Simulation, uh, and it's by an Italian group. And uh, just so people know, Advances in Simulation is an open access journal, and we do have a collaboration with them where we feature some of their articles. And the sort of, if I could give just the very short overview of this paper, uh, it sort of makes the point that medical simulation competitions are growing and people do that and many people here will have seen uh, sim wars and those sorts of things. And they ask the question, is this an effective educational format? And they say, yes. So the paper sort of starts out with a little bit of a background about saying sim training is good, we've got millennial students now, um, in quotation marks, they love gamification, uh, and they quote a couple of other articles about sim wars in particular by a couple of the people that we know and have been on simulcast before, Damien Shield being one, Scott Weingart being another, uh, that say they've been demonstrated to be effective. So the way they went about... Uh, uh, examining this was they run this thing every year uh, called SimCup and uh, teams of emergency <coughs> residents can nominate to participate in it. So it's a two-day event and on the first day they have a variety of actually probably simpler scenarios, often where they have to do procedural skills things and the best teams from that day then emerge to do a more SimWars style competition in day two. So this is where you'll have a classic uh, scenario, let's say a postpartum hemorrhage, one team does it, the other team does it, and there's some judges who get to uh, decide who did it the best. And then, of course, you get a winner at the end. And I guess sort of tagging onto the uh, vulnerability issue here, it was interesting to read about how they actually went about their judging, and they called it a plenary critical reflection, which I think means you get debriefed up on stage in front of everybody. So uh, I'm going to come back to this at the end because I think one of the things apropos this previous conversation is what do, how do we measure harm that happens in this? And I think that is a little question here. Uh, as one who's conducted one of these plenary critical reflections in front of 1,700 people at SMAC, um, it can go not well sometimes. 
So what did they use as the measures? So they basically took all these uh, residents who participated and they asked them two things. One was what was their satisfaction with the simulation experience, and that is apparently a validated scale. And then also what was their self-perceived confidence? So they asked them that before the scenarios and then after the scenarios. So there was no actual objective measure of their performance. Uh, you'll be surprised to know that their results, they got 10 out of 10 for satisfaction plus minus a little bit, but 10 out of 10. And uh, there was a high rating of perceived educational effectiveness. And their improvement in, uh, in confidence in managing specific scenarios went from 4 out of 10 to 6 out of 10 on day one and 5 to 7 out of 10 on day two. So, you know, this is, I think, I guess my view is it's easy to sort of say, well, you know, that's a very simplistic measure. They haven't actually shown it's effective. And it's true. I don't know. I think what we can say is that people liked doing this. Yes, and in fact, on average, they like doing this. We don't know if, in fact, the average, there were some people who didn't like it and some people who did like it, but the average was good. Um, but it sort of asks the question, you know, how could we do it differently or better? And I think that is actually quite a tricky thing for something like this, should you even be evaluating it. Um, and the thing that I would say is that, uh, you know, there it would be useful also to think about how could we evaluate harm. But anyway, I'll just pause there and sort of just get a few random thoughts before I come back to a couple of things about how I think we could kind of move this forward because I can see these authors doing good stuff, finding people that like it, telling them that they really enjoy it and they learn something from it, and then trying to think how do I disseminate that to other people? And I think then getting stuck, I've got to have some kind of a survey or quantitative evaluation. So that's my kind of initial thoughts. So my my thing thing is I've seen it emerging a bit more. People are publishing <laughs> using the Kirkpatrick model, which is a pretty ancient and pretty relatively superficial model in um, assessing educational outcomes. And these guys made it explicit that they evaluated at Kirkpatrick's level one and two, which is essentially did they like it and did they engage with it and did they think it changed something, not did. It's, was there a, an observable change and then uh, as level three and then level four would be, was there a system and be, behavioral change in situ um, that arose out of it, which are the higher level, um, very difficult things to measure. And certainly with this sort of size, the other, the, the, um, guys that they didn't actually reference, <laughs> which would be quite interesting given that it was self-perception was a huge thing was Dunning-Kruger. Um, asking a bunch of learner, we, we know how unreliable learner self-perception Oh, perception of performance is. Um, it's just a strange thing to actually use as a, an evaluation that, that learning has occurred. Um, and that said, I think it's great that people are publishing what I'd refer to as local small work um, to contribute to these areas just so that we're actually critiquing it, discussing how could it be done better. So Yeah, and interestingly, it's actually really a two minus. So if you look at Kirkpatrick's model, two actually is a change in knowledge. Uh, whereas three is a sort of application and, and this is a perceived change in knowledge. And as you've just rightly pointed out, the literature is, is, it's tricky on the perception of confidence versus the actual competence. And there's a vast mismatch. Um, that said, there are things like self-efficacy, which are real things. It, that's not just a thing. So I think this is really hard. And to represent it as a number, um, I think, unfortunately, just doesn't do it justice. But I can see why people do, because it's hard to capture the, the depth elsewhere. Um, ben? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I've converted to the church in terms of understanding that. As, and I think for a lot of our audience, we will 
want to share something that we think is cool and then we have been used or we've been trained to do some RCTs and that validity equals numbers and so you try and do the right thing and I've done it myself. You go out, you roll out a whole bunch of Likert scales, you ask people if they like it, you turn them into a number and therefore you have validity and that's completely understandable. I would have loved to see the same paper take a uh, what you would call a qualitative approach where they actually interviewed maybe the people who participated and had a really good long chat and explored, well, what were the things that were good about this rather than it just being fun? And what were the things that you actually learned with specifics, please? And was actually, even though it was fun, was there actually anything a little bit bad about it? And how did you feel a week down the track or two weeks down the track? Um, and I think that would have helped me learn more from what they were trying to share than seeing that people liked it when they volunteered to do it. Mm. And I think there's even another test that people are putting onto things now, and that was, is it worth it? Like, yes, you enjoyed it, but was there return mm. on investment? If all these folks had to travel to the competition, only some of them got to do day two, the numbers of instructors that they had, so there was one instructor for every 2.5 participants, you know, this is an expensive exercise. Mm -hmm. And a bit like our previous one, sort of setting up our team-based ward emergencies, you've got to think really hard, is this the only way for people to learn how to do a lumbar puncture? Mm -hmm. And probably not. Mm -hmm. um, is it a way to get people wholly engaged? Maybe. Um, and so I, a bit, you know, coming back to that dissemination issue, I think this is where it is nice that there are now some avenues like uh, MedEd Portal and others where you can kind of publish ideas, works in progress and not think I've got to prove that it works mm. because works is such a, such a term that's so difficult in a lot of these educational outcomes. It works for a group of people at a certain time in a certain context with a certain outcome that you have in mind. Mm. And I think... Uh, it's, it would be nice to have vehicles where you can sort of say, have a look at this. If it's going to work for you, then take it. But we're not going to pretend we've proven it because that is also a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, and I guess um, for me it was really interesting because I, I actually quite enjoy being a participant in um, simulation challenges. I've done it a few times, but I'm also conscious that I'm quite self-selecting to do that. I'm socially facilitated in those situations as well where I'll actually enjoy being evaluated and having my skills tested as part of a team. That that Sim Cup is a self-selecting group of those sorts of people as well. So it's yeah difficult to actually generalise anything out of it. It was so with some curiosity that I read it because we are about to run probably the most psychologically unsafe sim simulation that I've ever been involved in at Resus Toronto, an escape room simulation. Um, but again, that is purely being represented as nothing more than a game and it's self-selecting participants for it. And it's made overt from the start that it's largely impossible or it, it's can be impossible to solve. So, yeah. again, the, per the professional identity isn't being carried into that or threatened. So, hence, this is why we went with the Sim Cup paper because it does still follow this theme of vulnerability, um, albeit a tenuous link, but I like to have a bit of a link between the two. So... If we're happy to put a lid on that. Oh, and so one of the, I mean, it's, it's quite a real thing. I mean, there are some simulation conferences who have actively stopped doing sim wars because there was a very strong feeling about the psychological unsafety of it. So, you know, I, I don't think this is new, um, whereas some others have definitely persisted. And it's interesting to see, in my experience, the emergency medicine critical care groups are still like, yeah, go for it, sim wars, yeah. whereas the educational groups and conferences have kind of backed off it a little bit. I don't know who's right, but it's mm -hmm. been interesting to observe. Yeah, and I guess that's the tussle. Is it a game 
um, in which case we should clearly frame it as that, or is it actually a valid learning experience, <laughs> in which case we really need to be careful about thinking about the professional identity threat to the participants. So, mm. Awesome. We're happy to put a lid on that and um, move on. Um, thank you, Vic and Ben. But before we go, can you just give us a bit of a preview of what uh, next month's yeah, Journal absolutely. Club has to come? So I do just want to highlight that in the next couple of days we'll publish or when, when we've got time to edit the sound, we'll be publishing this podcast but also our PDF summary and that has an expert opinion from Jane Stanford who lots of the people in the audience will know because she's the educator for educators on APLS. Um, so a lot of us, for a lot of us, Jane has been the first introduction to educational theory and learning about learning and how we teach and she really took that article of uh, about vulnerability and tried to throw it back a bit and said, actually, it can help the teachers as much as it can help the learners. So it's really well worth the read if you download the PDF when you come to the website. Um, and our next month's article is going to be a classic, uh, and it's called Cody Briefing for Simulation-Based Education. It's by Cheng et al., and it's published in 2015 in Simulation and Healthcare. And it's about how do you debrief with another person and working out some strategies for doing that more explicitly. But I think it has a lot of value even if you're not into sim because it's a really about above-the-table negotiation and learning to have a discussion where your learners can see in front of you that you're not necessarily on the same page and negotiating that with them rather than pretending that we're perfect again. And what's happening with Namali? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, there's a little inside joke there that uh, the case the case frames the the case stimulus for the journal club monthly thing is uh, yeah. Ben has flourished as a semi romantic author in these cases and you will see if you juxtapose the each month's case um, there's a thread and yeah so it's kind of adding up to a romance novel <laughs> <laughs> so we shall see we shall see what happens. Okay. Yep. On that highly pseudo-academic <laughs> note, we'll uh, draw the first ever DFTB Live uh, Simulcast Journal Club to a close. And thank you all for being part of it. We'd love to hear from you. Contact or comment at simulationpodcast.com.